Okay, welcome to the show, the Courage to Lead interview series. Today is um, someone I've known for a long time, actually, and um, I've been following his career since I met him in Mission Australia um, back in the early uh, 2012, 2013. And he's now a, a counsellor at um, Goulburn on the Goulburn Council. So the man I'm, I'm talking to today is Daniel Strickland. Um, Daniel, a pleasure to have you on our program today. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks very much. It's great to be here with you. Let's we'll just turn that volume up a bit. Um, so, the, where I'd like to go right initially is, um, like, I've given you a bit of a prompt, but um, so just some of the things I know about you. You've been a police officer. You've been in Mission Australia, um, uh, uh, both in the city and the country. You started the Goulburn's Men's Walk, um, which I've followed with great interest. You're heavily involved in homelessness. Um, you're a councillor for Goulburn um, City Council as well, uh, recently appointed in the last 12 months. Congratulations on that. And you're also a funeral director as well. <laughs> so um, you're, a man, you're a man of many talents and you're also a dad, a husband and, um, and uh, kind of a support to many people. So... Let's just kind of kick it off um, a little bit open-ended. Um, who is Daniel Strickland and where, where did all this start? Yeah, look, I think um, first and foremost, you know, a father, father of five kids. Um, who, you know, a couple of them now are, are adults. And, you know, a, a husband uh, to my beautiful wife, Jules. And I guess where it all began for me is, yeah, left school, joined the police, did six years uh, in the New South Wales Police and absolutely loved it. Uh, but I found in, in my time in the police, I was, you know, working with vulnerable communities and locking up people that were dealing and using drugs and doing break it in and stealing cars, all that sort of stuff. But I just felt there was something more that could be done uh, for those people. And working in law enforcement, you've got your role, put them before the courts, let the courts decide what happens. Uh, but I felt there was more that could be done. And in my work in the police, I crossed paths with Mission Australia's Mission Beat service and saw the work they did uh, with people that were homeless and vulnerable communities. And I thought, wow, these guys are, are pretty amazing. And then I was at a stage where I was looking at uh, leaving the police and I, I went to Mission Australia and I thought they were volunteers, but there was actually a paid job there. And I, I started at Mission Australia's Mission Beat working in the vans that work out on the streets with people that are homeless. And also I was working alongside, I found myself working alongside the local police and ambulance in and around the city. And... Um, really enjoyed it and enjoyed that sort of that background that I had from my policing time and in working with you know different people from different walks of life uh, dealing in in crisis situations dealing in you know tricky dangerous situations at times as well um, with people that were you know mentally ill on the streets of Sydney uh, involved in all sorts of you know unsafe behaviors and practices and I think that skills and experience that I got from the police really sort of was really useful and still to this day is useful in my, my time at Mission Australia when I'm, you know, here I am uh, 20-something years later 
uh, and still in at Mission Australia, working with vulnerable communities now across southern New South Wales and the ACT. Okay. So that, that time at, at Mission Beat in Sydney was an amazing time. Uh, and people like yourself, uh, that was quite passionate um, in the, the space of homelessness and, and disadvantaged people. And then, you know, 12 years later, I, I moved to my current role as area manager based in, in Goulburn and looking after our programs across southern New South Wales and, and leading those teams. Let's um, just take, take just take a bit of a rewind because you've um, you've jumped straight into to, to how you ended up in the in the police, New South Wales Police. Um, so when did you what? Let, let's kind of just rewind that a little bit. Where did where did you grow up and when? What at what age did you join the police and how did that come about? Yeah, so when I was at school, I did uh, work experience. Back then, you could do work experience with the police, and um, I did that on two occasions because I think as, as long as I can remember, um, I wanted to be a cop. And then when I did my second stint of work experience in about year 11, I think it was, um, the local uh, commander uh, at the time there was uh, Inspector Mick Frawley at Riverwood. And he said to me, he said, now what are you going to do when you finish school? between, you know, finishing and, and being old enough to go and join the police and go to the academy. And I said, oh, I hadn't thought about that because, you know, you're young and you just think, oh, I'm just going to leave school and I'm going to go to the cops. Yeah. And he said, well, here's a person I'm going to put you in touch with at the local club at Riverwood. Uh, I want you to go up there now and I want you to see them and talk to them about uh, working up there. So I thought, okay, all right, I'll, I'll do what Mr. Frawley says. Yeah. And off, off I went, and um, then they said, come back and see us next year when you're uh, old enough, and we'll, we'll give you a few ships. So I did, and I did bar work and worked on the door at the club, and, you know, it, it was just... And I could see why Mr. Frawley was saying, hey, this would be a good place to go and, and, and work. Because you're working with people that were intoxicated, different walks of life, the customer service that was involved there, and I could see why he'd sort of said, that's a good place to go. So I, I went and did that for about six months and then went through the process of um, applying, and back then was a bit different to what it is now, um, joining the cops, and, you know, passed all the physical stuff and the interviews and, and got through that and then got my um, offer to join... Uh, prep class 262 I think it was back then and um, yeah went, went and did that left the academy came to went to Flemington uh, in southwestern Sydney yeah, yeah. and then Marrickville uh, for the rest of my time which you know I loved and back then Marrickville was really a lot different to what it is today yeah. and, and, and pretty wild yeah. uh, back then too and then I did a stint at um, Operation Pacini out of Cabramatta. Okay. Um, when the drugs were really sort of running rife out there. It's one that we didn't meet there. I was there too. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so that's a little bit more of a, a, a an insight into because Flemington and Marrickville, as you say, back in those days, what 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 years are we talking about there? Um, I left in two thousand. So yeah, looking at uh, yeah ninety five to. 2000 yeah. so it was um yeah a different a world different to today. yeah 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 um 
Okay, so that's very helpful. So what, um, I think you touched on it when you, when you uh, gave that initial summary, what made you decide to leave the police? Because that's, um, it's such a commitment to join the police. I guess I got to a stage where I'd met my wife-to-be and I was also going through some um, matters in the police with, with people going back to um, working the streets of Marrickville after going to Cabramatta and having some people out there that took dislikings that were then setting up camp in Marrickville. Yeah. Um, and I got uh, I got assaulted one night out of a, a work drink um, by a group of um, uh, gang members. Yeah. And it was at that time I just sort of had the discussion with my wife and said, "Hey, you know, uh, what do, what do we do?" Um, and at that stage, I just felt, look, you know, my time's done here. Yeah. Met, met my wife to be. Yeah. Um, and had that period of transition and and the job at uh, Mission Australia. But prior to that, I'd sort of already seen the work that these guys had done and I'd seen the people that I was arresting and putting before the courts and felt a little bit more that I can do here. What what more can I do that I can't do in the police? And, yeah. and that was just this, it was almost like this divine intervention, putting Mission Beat in front of me and calling on them to assist people that are homeless and then seeing what they did. And that was always in the back of my mind. These guys can do more. Mm. And then when I looked into it and found out more about what they do, I thought, well, this is still pretty cool. I can still get out and about. I still work with the police, still work with vulnerable people and coming to them in a different um, perspective. And I've got a great story to sort of share in that space yeah. about what Perfect. you know happened um, after that. But... That was sort of that, that period of transition in that I, I really wanted to do more. Um, and don't get me wrong, I love the police and I love the yeah. camaraderie and that was one thing I missed when I did leave. Yeah. Um, that camaraderie is not there. And then you go into, you know, I was a driver at Mission Beat for probably three or four months before I was then into a leadership role. Mm. So once you're in those leadership roles, I guess you, you miss out on that camaraderie with your team because... I've always been one that, as a leader, I don't want to be mixing and socialising with my staff outside of work and then having to come and go through HR matters and disciplinary yeah. matters. So, you know, we, we look at leaders and, and yourself that, you know, sometimes it could be a lonely place yeah. Yeah. Um, in leadership because of that fact that, you know, as a good leader, distancing yourself, still being personable and still working with, with the teams, but having that disconnect and um, losing that camaraderie that you had with your, your co-workers in the cops. Yeah, okay. Now yeah. in the not-for-profit and being in a leadership role where, um, yeah, that can sometimes be a bit complex if you've yeah, yeah. got those, not those clear boundaries. I understand total, all of that, Daniel. Um, can I ask you this, because I think you're hinting at it so clearly, but just um, in an obtuse way, why did you join the police? Look, I joined the police because as long as I can remember, I remember being in kindergarten at St Anthony's at Clovelly and having the police come in and talk to us, like they, well, I guess they still do, yeah. um, and come in and, and see these police and hear hear them talk and I just go, that's what I'm going to do one day. Okay. And 
my parents said, oh, he'll grow up, he'll come <laughs> out of it. Like all kids want to be a cop or yeah. a fiery or an ambo at some stage. And, and I just, I didn't grow out of it, I guess. Yeah. Then I wanted to do it because I, you know, everybody says, oh, you want to help people and you, you know, want to change the world. I never did it because I wanted to change the world, but I did do it because I thought it was a good career to be out there and really um, help people yeah. uh, and keep people safe, I guess. Yeah, and and then, yes, that's 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 a big part of the job, um, but then that that's what I love doing, and that's what I've done all all my yes. working life yeah. is yeah. working in a field of helping people, yeah. and now I get to do that too, and I'm really sort of there helping those people that are the most vulnerable in my community, and I'm not directly doing it all the time now, um, but supporting my teams that are out there working with people that are homeless, working with families that are, have issues around drug addiction and, um, you know, great trauma in families and, and, and the like. So having that experience that I got from the police, yes. I've then taken on through my work at Mission Australia and my work that I do now working alongside yes. uh, our local police across southern I, New South Wales. I think, um, I know you just, you've, yeah, you hit it, hit it on it straight away. I think any any of our listeners um, listening to your story today will it comes through in spades that you know most people join the cops to make a difference to help people, but then you've kind of put that on steroids um, and and used your skills to enhance that to a to another level. Because um, police have a certain role and then normally have um, have other agencies come in and do what other agencies can do, but you're taken that to another level. So I, I thank you for um, being so honest that uh, you kind of underlying keel or rudder is um, is to help people. And now in Mission Australia, you can do that um, across the board and influence influence your team. So um, I'm curious, talk, do you want to take us through how long you were in the city? Um, and you've hinted at you're a leader, and you know, in about two or three months after after hitting the ground in Mission Australia, from a driver to a leader, what's that? What what did that leadership role entail? And just in a summary, you know, kind of what did you do while you were in the city? Because I know what you did, um, and I, I can't. Yeah. Hopefully, your um your answer can take me into one of my, my other questions that I want to ask you. Is um like it's obvious to any of the listeners today. Like I haven't prompted you at all today, um, um, and the way you can uh, put your ideas across, the way you uh, tell a story, uh, the way you emphasise certain points. So where I was uh, going with that question, I'll just ask you to kind of outline what happened um, in your you know your years as a, a Mission Australia leader in the city. Because you, to any of the listeners today, you obviously have skills. You're a very good presenter. You're you're very good good orator, um, and I'm just curious to know where did that come from? As you kind of tell me about uh, your experiences in the city as a Mission Australia leader. Yeah, yeah. So when I when I started at Mission Mission Australia's Mission Beat, working with people on the streets, there was a couple of months there. I I got in and I guess coming from the police and you have those skills in talking with people of all walks of life, um, dealing with difficult clients and situations and, and customers and whatever the case may be. And I think that was something that, 
you know, my leaders at the time could see. And there was coming up there, the team leader that had been there for quite a few years uh, was going off on long service leave. And they asked me to step up um, into it, which it was somewhat of a surprise. Um, but then I thought, you know what? Yeah, I can do this. This is, you know, I, I love the work working out on the street, but I also love being in a position. And I guess when you're in the cops and, and only being fairly junior by the time I left, but when you look at the city, once you've got that first hook, you're the senior person on the truck and you've got to make the decisions a lot of the times and, and you, you, you sort of step up and you have to leave. So I, I just sort of looked at it similar to that and I'd had that experience in you know, training younger cops coming through. So I, I guess I picked up those skills there in leadership and walking alongside them and knowing what things, when I first joined, that, that was perhaps lacking that I was able to um, show these young, fresh, eager recruits. And that's something then that I took over into the not-for-profit sector and, and leading the team of Mission Beat, I guess I, I looked at it in a similar way that we had new people coming in. So it was that whole onboarding and making it a pleasant experience for people, uh, buddying them up with, with a more senior sort of worker to work out on the van until they got their legs and then they would go out there by themselves. Um, and I guess my, my skills there in, in working with police and other emergency services sort of were, were most beneficial because um, over that time too, you know, the police were really sort of one of the closest resources that we would work with, that we would get the calls uh, from them, the police and the ambulance, for us to go and assist and pick up someone that's, you know, sleeping rough and on the streets and might be intoxicated and needed a lift back to a safe place to sober up. Yeah. So I was able to sort of talk that talk with our emergency services and work with them. And, and I guess then the process really, like in that acting team leader role that was initially, was just here's the keys, here's the computer. Um, and then away you went. And I suppose over the years I then built those skills and then that, that person that moved on, I then went into that role permanently. And then within a year or two, then I worked in, went into a service manager role, then looking after mission beats, homeless men's shelter at Newtown, uh, homeless service at Manly, um, and started to grow this portfolio and then restructures happen and then I take on more business. Um, and without ever really having any formal, I suppose, leadership training, you do the little courses along the way. Um, but I think just at the end of the day, it came down to the respect and, and thinking back to how I would like to be treated by my manager and I, I tried to sort of do that for my staff too. And, you know, I did that. I was in Sydney for, uh, I think, the first 12 years of, of my time at Mission Australia. Yeah. And in that time, yeah, the Mission Beat Service and a few other programs that I took on that were all around that sort of homelessness space. Yeah. Um, and in that time then, you know, developed uh, protocols and different ways of working and, and that's where you and I crossed paths and the work that we were then able to do in the work that police were doing, it, it was a new way of thinking and working too to, to solve a problem. Yeah. And I also worked with police and, and council down in Bondi for issues around people that were sleeping rough and it was a, it's a way of new thinking and new working um, with law enforcement. Um, it helped them 
and it helped us. So it was that relationship that we we both benefited from. Yeah. Okay. So you just essentially your you your own style was to 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 have good relationships with people, treat people how you'd like to be treated as the as the new kid on the block, and then expand those skills to yeah. to make a difference to work with other agencies. Yeah, that's right. And and I was always a good one. I go, I guess, for that networking and and looking at opportunities, and whether that was networking with other service providers, police, ambulance. Um, you know, clients themselves on the street because they're an important stakeholder in this whole thing. They're the ones that my team have got to work with. They're the ones that are, um, yeah, can help us inform our service and what we can do and how we can better serve them. And that was just, you know, looking back, that was all that, you know, continuous quality improvement that we were sort of doing without, you know, calling it that, I guess. Yeah. Do you want to give an example? Like, I know what you're talking about, but so... A lot of our listeners um, uh, would probably not appreciate how insidious and how harmful homelessness is and how hard it is to get some traction to make a difference to someone's lives. Just maybe um, uh, can you provide an example of how using your skills you work with other agencies to get around a problem in homelessness? Yeah, so when we look at the city of Sydney back then, we had about, I think from the street councils, about 500 people sleeping rough in and around the city of Sydney. Now, that's not just the city of Sydney LGA, that's the city of Sydney CBD and down to Woolloomooloo, Kings Cross. Um, and, you know, that was a huge problem. And we had people that were sleeping in doorways, sleeping in parks, you know, accumulating a lot of stuff and developing camps and... You know, that was an issue not only for council, but it was an issue for the police and it was an issue for us. So being able to form um, a group that, that brought together those stakeholders to look at the issue that we had and better allocate our resources, better allocate the support for people, not just about, you know, uh, police historically would come along, move people on, there's an issue there, someone's complained, right guys, you've got to get up, you've got to move on. Now, that doesn't help anything. They go to another area where somebody else is ringing and going, hey, we've got these people out the front, they won't move on. Um, but these people weren't really committing any offences, but it wasn't something that everybody was getting on with and, and working together and working in the same direction. So yeah. bringing together groups of people to um, better support the people that were sleeping rough I, I know since then, you know, the services that operate in the city and the funding and the money that's going in to support that, I know their numbers are, are way down to about 250 or 300 sleeping rough across the city. And a lot of people from back then are all, all now being housed and um, living a full life. Yeah. Another one of the challenges that we had was when, you know, the reality of it was there were people that were homeless that were dying on the streets of Sydney. Yeah. Uh, I know that I, I had a number of occasions where I had to um, identify deceased homeless people yeah. on the streets. We had people that were murdered on the streets, people being set alight in tents in Belmore Park. Yeah. Uh, I remember one gentleman that came to me one morning, I said, what happened to your tent? He said it got set alight last night. Mm. Now, he said he'd run the police, and that's, you know, his words, and I did take this up, and no, no ill harm to the police, but... 
he said, oh, well, the police said that I, I wasn't badly injured, so there's nothing they can do. Now, that didn't sit right with me. Mm. So I took on that cause for that person and spoke to people, and within half an hour, we had crime scene down there in detectives. Yeah. And that was just being able to be that voice for, essentially, people in our community that were voiceless. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's one thing that I really enjoyed about um, my time in Sydney, was being able to take on that fight uh, for people that I guess didn't have a voice and to get a really good outcome and you know that person really felt uh, listened to and felt that the seriousness of that that particular matter was taken seriously once we'd sort of escalated things yeah. in that case. And that's because you had the relationships with the people that could make a difference. That's right yeah. and that was the thing about that relationship and I did and I called and I said look I might be overreacting here but what do you think about this? And then they go, no, leave it with us. We'll get someone down there. So, yeah. again, that relationship building is a huge part of, I guess, um, and in line with the, you know, the topic of this, this is, you know, as a leader, to have those relationships um, to better serve our people, our staff, our customers, our clients, whatever the case may be. Yeah, yeah. And part, and part of the, the ethos behind this program is, um, behind this interview series is, is leaders who empower others to create supportive and inclusive environments. So that's what you're doing. Like I think you said, you're not yeah. um, you're 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 creating a voice for the voiceless. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, that's that's a it's a lovely story. So if if I remember rightly, what like in in all these relationships that you're talking about, and your ability to create a voice for the voiceless and make a difference for people, um, you obviously had to speak a lot to different uh, people of influence um, and, the, and the media. Where did, uh, like I've seen you talk um, to a, uh, a very well-regarded journalist from an ABC show on the, on the platforms of Central Railway early one morning and, and your, your delivery was flawless. Where did you learn those skills? Like that, I'm talking, that's... Probably 2012, 2013. Yeah. yeah, I remember that early morning at Central Station. Yeah. Uh, I guess my first entry into dealing with and, and things was um, the Mission Beat's 25th anniversary. So it was a big milestone. Now we're at 40 something years. Um, and we were at uh, Town Hall Square and we had a big event, a big tent, and you know, here's me, the little Mission Beat driver and looking after that service and we had the official, uh, you know, I think Bob Carr was the Premier then and we had um, all sorts of dignitaries there and, and the big bosses came and spoke and I don't think I had to speak at that particular event but after the event, all the media that was there, which was all the TV news and radio and, and everyone was, was all there and they, they didn't want to talk to the CEO and the general manager, they wanted to speak to someone that had been working on the ground. So I remember my media person came up to me and said, hey, these people don't want to talk to this, you know, the CEO, they want to talk to, to you. Can you talk to them? And I go, what do I have to say? And they go, I don't know, they'll just ask questions and just, <laughs> yeah. just answer. And I thought, oh, okay. So I just got mixed with it and I'm there. And I, I, by the end of that day, I think I'd done about... 12 interviews and the last one was a radio interview and I, I finished up I think it was about a half hour radio interview for 2GB with um, Bill Cruz I think yeah um, and
and that was the end of my day, and I, I finished, and I was so exhausted. But at the end of that day, I'd done every TV channel, every uh, radio channel, and this was going across Australia, and that was into the deep end. Yeah. And then from there, uh, I think Mission Australia must have liked what I did or said. And I think that the easy part to that to me was I was just talking about what I did and my passion and shared a couple of stories of people that I dealt with. And that was what, I suppose, the media want to get that grab for the news that night and, and news bits of, of what I'd said. And obviously I said stuff that was in line with what they wanted to capture. And then from then on, I um, yeah was was doing media stuff probably once or twice a week. Um, whenever there was anything with a cold snap of weather, or a homeless person was found deceased, or there was issues around homelessness around the city, I was the one that uh, I guess they would go to um, numerous times, taking around you know uh, TV news crews around in the Mission Beat van and. You know, back then they got the big, huge news cameras and trying to fit one of them and sure. a journo in the front of the mission booth van and then still try and navigate the back streets of Sydney was uh, a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Uh, but I guess I guess I, I developed those skills in talking to people and, and worked out over time, but getting your points across, get, have your key messaging that you want to get out and you might want to repeat a couple of times just so they get, get that grab. Um, and look... I enjoyed it. I uh, it was interesting. You'd you'd go home at night. And I'd have the little kids, and I'd been out doing the news that day, and they'd be sitting watching the TV and see me on the TV, and they'd look at me sitting next to them, and just it would blow their mind. How can he be in the TV and he's here sitting? <laughs> so that was that was quite funny to sort of see with with young kids yeah. um, growing up and not comprehending that you know the the people aren't actually inside the TV. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, I I guess it was just into the deep end uh, and did it, and, and now I, I still do it, uh, not as frequent as what I was doing in Sydney, yeah. and, and doing regional media um, is, is a little bit different, but, um, yeah, still being an advocate for those people and, um, you know, also working and, and taking around premiers and... Uh, other politicians and, and talking about the work that we do and then having outcomes that come from that that either a change to policy or additional funding coming our way and you see the benefit of that sort of advocacy work. Okay. Um, I think anyone that listening to you can see you have those skills, you know, at, at a very excellent level. So I really take my um, hat off to you, Daniel, because I think it's a it's the it's the measure of probably any leader how they how they communicate what they want to get across to the to their own staff or as you just you just outlined to get different outcomes in policy or get d- different outcomes in uh, funding which you know you you've obviously done when you started this interview you actually touched on a story that you wanted to tell that was close to your heart can yeah. you can you is is that in around this time do you want to tell yeah, it? Look, it's um, I, I'd love to share it. So I was this is at at Mission Beat, and you know, some year or two after I'd, I'd left the police, and I remember being in Albion Street, and I pulled up to speak to a bloke that was homeless and doing it tough, and 
I pulled up and I got out of the van and I've, I've looked at him and he's looked at me and then it was just that moment where you go, shit, this guy remembers me from my time in the police. Okay. And then at that same time, I remembered that uh, I'd done like a, a, a covert drug buy. <laughs> he was the he was the crook. Yeah. That I got it from, and then he ended up doing a year or two. Oh ago, no. And okay. I thought, right, I'm, I'm getting ready to run. Yeah. But then he then he put his hand out, and I, I put my hand out, and he said. You're a cop. And I go, not anymore, mate. I left a couple of years. This is what I do now. Rah, rah, rah. He said, I remember you. And I said, ah, yeah, I think I remember you too. <laughs> and then we sat there talking for about half an hour. He just said, he said, you know, that what? That was a turning point in my life. That was a time that I was at my lowest. And I went away. You know, I came out. I'm, I'm out. I'm, I'm homeless. Uh, but I'm off the gear. And I'm doing this. Now, fast forward another couple of, I think it was about a year later, I was at an interagency meeting in the northern suburbs of Sydney, and in walks this guy again. Yeah. And I I talked to him. He, he definitely, he'd cleaned himself up. He said he had a house. Uh, he'd met uh, a woman, and they were talking about getting married. And I just thought, man, this is amazing. And I said, this is amazing how we keep being put back together and crossing paths. Yeah. And I said, this is some weird divine intervention happening here. And I just thought, wow, you, you, you just don't think in your policing time that you're making an impact in someone's life. You lock them up, put them to court, probably never remember them, never see them again. Yeah. And then, to see him then, and then fast forward another probably six, 12 months or something, he's there and he said, I want you to, I want you to meet my wife yeah. and there she was and she was like six months pregnant and I just thought wow and they got a house and they're settling down and he's working in the sector and I just it just blew my mind uh, to see that the, the crossing paths with this guy and seeing the life that he had now had for himself and yeah just still to this day I just can't believe that we kept being put in the path of each other um, and to see how his life had changed and moved on, and here he was now, being in a role like I was, supporting people that are, you know, disadvantaged and doing it tough, and he was able to sort of give his bit back after, you know, the, the life that he was built. Yeah, that's what I love, um, Daniel, about talking to people like yourself. Um, I, I had Erin uh, Longbottom on the show. She was one of the first people we interviewed in the, the homeless um, health team from St Vincent's. Um, and when, when people like you and Aaron tell your story about someone whose life you've actually changed, it's so obvious, the, the passion and the joy um, that, that, someone's, that someone's got out of that, that life. One thing, um, and I think you're very well uh, placed to say it, like a lot of people say in, in not in the homeless, homelessness world, have an idea in their head that it's the homeless person's fault that they're homeless or that it's um, through um, misadventure or mismanagement that they're homeless and it's, and it's, all, and it's all their fault. Do you, I, I know you don't think that. Do you want to tell, um, give a kind of an overview to our listeners about what it is to be homeless and, and how easy it is to be there? 
Yeah, definitely. And, and quite often we hear that, um, you know, a lot of people are only one paycheck away from being homeless. And, you know, we, being that, that, you know, a lot of people will spend, work, uh, live paycheck to paycheck. And if that job goes and then they've got a month or two months without a paycheck, you know, things start to build up. But one thing that I've seen in, you know, the 20 plus years that I've been in this space is that there's not one story behind every person that's homeless. They're not all alcoholic or or drug addicts or, um, you know, experiencing trauma. But one thing that is, I guess, uh, behind a lot of, well, the majority of people that are homeless is that there's trauma. You know, there's been research done in that space that people that are homeless have experienced great trauma in, in their lives and, and it's been a factor. And that's one thing definitely that I've seen. Whether it be uh, as a child and, and lived a terrible life with family and, and friends or foster care or whatever the case is, definitely trauma is there amongst, I would say, 90% of the people that are, that are homeless. Mm-hmm. And when we look at that and we work with them, we, we get to unpack that a little bit. Um, and see that there's been a number of, I guess, turning points in their life that's taken them down a, down a track that um, hasn't been helpful for them. Uh, we've got women that are affected by domestic and family violence, that quite often it's easier for them to, to leave the home uh, and live on the street. I remember having conversations with women on the streets and they go, I'm not going into a hostel, I'm not going into a refuge, you know. I'm, I feel safer on the streets than I than I have in the last ten years in my relationship with my husband, mm. and that's really you know scary stuff to sort of hear. It's tragic. Um, yeah. I, I I think I think of an old Scottish bloke, John Keegan's, and he was homeless on the streets of Sydney, and he came out from Scotland, and he came out here as a steeplechase jockey. Uh, he used to race the horses. He had one of the horses that he absolutely loved. That horse died uh, during a fall. Um, and it sort of rattled him. He met a, another fellow on the streets of Sydney, sat down talking with him, and uh, that's where he was for the next 10, 15 years. Uh, and he was homeless on the streets of Sydney. And such an awesome character, John was. And he's since passed. And I remember being with him, and I'm sorry, I digress, I do that. Um, <laughs> You're all right. He, he, he has such a, a great story in that, you know, coming out from Scotland, then when we worked with him and I, I remember when we opened Mission Australia's Common Ground at Camperdown, which was a mix of affordable and social housing. And I said, John, now look, mate, if I can get you, this was after a couple of years of working with him, and he was well known around Surrey Hills and he was a bit of a character and whenever I needed to do, have any media and they wanted to talk to someone, he was always one that was up for it. Quite often needed subtitles, but... He was always good for, for having a yarn with the media. And then we, I, I called him this favour with Common Ground and I said, look, got this bloke, blah, blah, blah. I said to John, I said, John, if I can get you accommodation, will you go in? And he was getting to a stage and, and when we work with people that are homeless, you've got to be there ready to go when they put their hand up and say, you know what, I do want to get off the street. Yeah. Now, John did. And he put his hand up and he said, yeah, I want to get off the street. I, want to, I said, mate, this is, this is permanent. You're going to get accommodation there and you're going to have it till the day you die. And he said, no, that doesn't happen. I said, no, we can make it happen. Yeah. And I remember sitting there with him and we, um, I was tweeting about John because John was well known and, and across and people had followed his stuff on my social media and we got him in there 
and then we had the Sydney Morning Herald that picked up the tweet and wanted to do a story and they wanted to talk to him. So I'm sitting in the waiting room at Common Ground for the journey to give us a call. And then I'm talking to him. I said, now, John, you said you had a brother and he was over in England and you had this and that. And he'd never really spoken about it because we, we see people with a homeless, they're so protective of their life, their history. They don't want to embarrass their family and shame and all that sort of stuff. So then he started talking about and he mentioned his brother's name and I'm sitting there with my iPad and I'm searching this guy's name. I find a Facebook profile that matches. I go and look at it and it says, I'm thinking of John at this time. And it was a Christmas post. Yeah. And I played the song. I said, oh, John, what's this This picture here? Does this mean anything? He goes, no, no. I said, oh, what about this song? And I played the song. And then the tears just yeah. trickled down John's face. Yeah. And he said, show me that picture again. And he looked at the picture and he goes, that's my brother. Wow. And then I just go, wow. <laughs> anyway, long story short, reached out to the brother. Brother came back to me. He set up an early morning meeting the next day, surprised to John, rang the phone number. The guys over in the UK put him on the phone. I said, oh, John, someone here wants to talk to you. He goes, oh, another interview. I said, no, I just haven't yarned to this bloke, will you? They started talking, and then, again, John just broke down, tears, brothers crying, they're talking. It's just like they picked up from where they'd left off nearly 20 years ago. Yeah, that's beautiful. The brother thought he was dead. Um, fast forward a bit, his sister came out and visited him. I spent some time with them. The brother came out. Um, John, when he had the roof over his head, he was starting to get medical tests and things, was diagnosed with cancer. Um, called in a favour from a filmmaker, a friend of mine that captured his story that I was able to put on a, a stick and send to his family all of, all around the world. Yeah. Um, so so we could capture his story that they'd all missed out on. Yeah. Uh, and then I've connected with his daughter, um, and and she's been able to you know see pictures of him and and hear stories of his. So you know again something a bit outside the box that we do but so important in, in this role that I was able to sort of connect and um, bring him back to uh, connect families that thought he was dead. Okay. That's a beautiful story, Daniel. Um, I, I am conscious of time, but you, you just raised it a couple of times in that beautiful story, uh, the, the location and the, the building and the entity called Common Ground, which is run by Mission Australia, which is in uh, Camp Camperdown, I think you said. Now I know what I know what that is, but our listeners would have no clue. So there's been so much talk now in the media about um, a lack of social and affordable housing. So do you want to just kind of give a yeah. quick snapshot of what Common Ground is and how many Common Grounds exist? Yeah. So there's a few dotted around the countryside and some are smaller than, than what we've got at Camperdown and Mission Australia is not part of all of them. But Common Ground at Camperdown has a mix 50-50 of um, social housing, which people would know about um, housing commission and affordable housing. So affordable housing is means-based. It might, you might be a nurse that works at the local hospital and then you pay X amount of you know, your income on, on rental. And then the other half of the property is people that have been formerly homeless and essentially it's it's like the old housing commission type arrangement. Um, and and that gives that mix of community. So it's not like 
the old ghettos and the the block at, at um, you know the blocks of high rise at Waterloo uh, that a lot of listeners might be familiar with. But it gives this mix of community and and the connection that people have with others outside of the community they may not have had before. So it's bringing together these people and people might think, oh, well, that's not going to work. Well, it has. It's been going near on 10 years now. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that mix is also, um, it it opens up people's understanding that are not uh, historically residents of of housing um, properties. And it gives also those people that are working in those lower income um, roles in the inner city an affordable option that they don't have to be catching two and three trains back and forward uh, to the city. So it gives that mix. Um, and, and this is a great way forward of uh, having affordable housing um, and also providing an option for people that work within that city to have less of the travel, um, and that's been really successful. And also having the wraparound services for those people uh, that are coming in that have been formerly homeless, and that's what John came in through, that sort of pathway, um, and that's where, um, you know, he got his life back on track, got his health in order, but then sadly um, cancer ended up getting him, but he died with that dignity. Lovely. Most people get having a, a permanent roof over their head and not dying. Uh, in some back street and alley of the city. Lovely, uh, very eloquent summary of what Common Ground's all about. So how many Common Grounds, you know, it's, well, I guess I think you said it's um, it's accommodation for 100 people, 50 uh, yeah. affordable housing, 50 people who were formerly homeless. How many yeah. buildings of that size exist across Sydney? Yeah, so I'm not sure of the numbers. I know that we've got that one. We've just opened a... Well, we've got Mission Australia uh, Centre at Surrey Hills, which is all focused on, um, you know, temporary accommodation for people, men that are homeless in that, but also having the wraparound services. And we've also just opened the Mission Australia uh, Centre up in Coffs Harbour. Oh, yes, um, yes. And then Common Grounds are running different, different iterations of what Common Ground does, but Common Ground was sort of the, the first one in Sydney that, that kicked off. Um, and, and that's all dependent on funding to build those bricks and mortar because that's the expensive part and then the, the long-term uh, support service to go with it. So, it's look, it's a great uh, great opportunity. It's a great model. And I've just... Today I'm in, in Vigo where I've just come from a round table on homelessness and I would love to see something like Common Ground or a model similar to that in our regional communities because homelessness isn't just the Sydney city thing. Um, it happens in community. I know our Mission Australia being the Valley Homelessness Service, the numbers that we're contracted to support people that are homeless, we've exceeded that by 300% this last year. So that's just showing a snapshot of what the issue is happening, and that's across regional uh, New South Wales, where we have just as big a problem. It may not be the people that are sleeping rough that we have in, this, in the metro areas, but definitely in regional communities, we've got people in tents, caravans, overcrowded, temporary accommodation in motels, uh, and the situation is, is at crisis point. Okay. That's a really good segue, Daniel, into... I wanted to explore, like, your... If I could use a very colloquial term um, that Kitty Flanagan uses in her shows, you were smashing it in the city um, in your role as a Mission Australia leader. What made you leave the impact that you're making there to go to the country and take on 
take on your new role there. I think you went to live in Goulburn. And when, yeah, when, when did that when did that happen? Yeah, so that happened uh, the end of twenty thirteen. I um, uh, I moved down to Goulburn, and what how that came about was I I loved Sydney and I loved the work that I was doing, but you know my eldest child, my daughter, um, was just about to start high school. Um, a position came up in Goulburn for the area manager role looking after southern New South Wales. And we actually found ourselves, every spare weekend we had, we would go to the bush. We would jump in the car and we would drive somewhere. We'd go out the other side of the Blue Mountains. We'd go down, actually Goulburn was one of our frequent yeah. uh, spots due to the proximity to Sydney. It was only a couple of hours and we're out of the city and uh, we quite, quite enjoyed going down there. And then also only a stone's throw down to the beaches um, in Wollongong, um, and so that position came up, and I thought, you know what? I think it's time for a sea change, a tree change. Yeah. And my daughter, being at that age, going into high school, and then the four other younger ones that you know would be minimal sort of impact them changing schools before they got to high school. Yeah. Spoke to the family, spoke to the wife, all happy to do it and, and have a crack and, and move to the country. My wife's only stipulation was that if I'm going to move to Goulburn, I want a big house. I don't want to be sitting in suburbia and uh, be on top of my neighbours. And I go, all right, no worries, deal. Uh, uh, so we did and we moved down and, and rented a nice big place on a, on a bit of a block of land and came down here and could see the variety of the work that then I could do. So we had some programs that were working with families that um, was around child protection um, community development work, uh, brokerage programs, homelessness, uh, which I still wanted to have hold of, of something in the homelessness space. Yeah. And then I had homelessness services in Cooma and Bega, and then other programs across that area, which was around child protection, financial counselling, gambling counselling, and the like. And and that's I love that variety. I love the travel across that that beautiful countryside that goes from, you know, Goulburn, Queanbeyan, Canberra, uh, down here to Bega, and just, and, and having a larger team with diverse backgrounds and skills, and also the different type of services that I then had to, I suppose, add challenge, um, and, and an, another challenge in, in building new networks across that community and, and that's something that I've done and also adapting and adjusting to working in regional communities whereas before, yes, I was in the, in the city and lots of people and all that sort of stuff but um, across such a diverse communities and, and each area has their own issues um, that are quite unique. Yeah, and you know it's different in Goulburn to what some of the issues that are happening here in Bega. So yeah, yeah. I think you've um like I've I've worked in Bega and Goulburn as a cop myself, and I, I and yeah. my my memory of 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 the landscape and the drives is it's very very long way to go. So you've just summarised that very um uh, romantically and <laughs> and beautifully because I can remember the drive from Bega to Goulburn can be a very long drive sometimes. So um. So I take my hat off to how your headspace in enjoying 
those challenging long distances <laughs> um, yeah. in, in your role. So that's, that's, that's probably one of your skills. Any one of the listeners that are listening to you today, you have a, definitely a, 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 cup half, a glass half full rather than half empty look on life uh, and you look to how you can improve um, people's situations in whatever, whatever that is. So rather than have you go into what you do in your Mission Australia role at Goulburn, in the lead-in I talked about you, um, when, when you arrived in Goulburn, or not long after, you set up a, a men's walk, a Goulburn men's walk. Yeah. Do you want to talk yeah. about, because Goulburn's a pretty cold place sometimes, <laughs> um, uh, so, but, you, but, you, yeah, but you still do it, because I've seen the pictures on social media. How did all that happen, and um, where, you know, what did you start with, and, and what's that group up to now? Yeah, yeah. So the Man Walk is an initiative that started up in, in Kiama and it was just a couple of blokes there that started out walking themselves and thought, you know, this is, this is pretty easy. We could get more blokes in and we could talk about what's going on in our life. And then the Man Walk was, was born there. And then fast forward a couple of years and later and they got some great um, mainstream uh, media traction. And when that happened, my inbox on my public social media page just uh, erupted and people saying, have you heard about the man walk? We've got to start this in Goldman. Why haven't we got it here? And I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> in my community, I'm, I guess I'm someone that does stuff and, and people think can make things happen. And so I reached out to the man walk guys. I said, right, what do we do about setting this up? And they said, oh, well, we've already set up a, a Facebook group for your community, but it's got a hundred people in it, and, and no one started a walk. And I said, "Well, add me to it, and I'll I'll, I'll try and kick it to life." And so I did, and I, I put it out, and I was completely selfish because Tuesday morning, six a.m. suited me. Yeah, I put it out there, and we had four blokes turned up at the first walk. And mind you, this this started in the middle of uh, or late June. In Goulburn, yeah, where it's frosty, it's cold, freezing, and I had my first week in the walk, and I thought, "You're an idiot. What did you do this?" <laughs> now you're committed. You're yeah. going public. You you put this out there. You got to you got to stick with it. Yeah. So we did, and that that core group grew to, you know, I think there's uh, about 250 on the local sort of Facebook group, and we have a core group of up to about 20 that sort of come along, and some come for a short time, some come for a long time. We kick off at six in the morning, we walk along the river walk, we're done about 45 minutes later. And the man walk is about walk, talk and support. So walking alongside other blokes and just talking. It's no no agenda, no, um, we don't get there and go, right, today guys, we're going to talk about relationships. Yeah. No, we just walk and talk. And we have a mix of older and younger. And coincidentally, I, I think I've got... Uh, three retired police officers that just happened to um, come along and yeah. they're uh, our regular walkers. We have the um, local officer in charge of Goldman Police, Inspector Matt Hinton, that is a regular walk and, mind you, a great support of my work. Yeah. And he comes every week too. And then that in turn has brought along a couple of other of his troops that come along that... Um, and, and it's not necessarily necessarily a walk for people that have issues or dramas in their life. It's about maintaining your mental health, being there to support other men. And I actually love having the cops come along because I know the challenges that they have yeah. and the number of police that 
um, you know, it, it, it's it's almost a, a weekly or monthly occasion to hear about another uh, one of the Thin Blue Line that has taken their life. Yeah. So, you know, to have it that we are able to um, provide that outlet for our local police and general community that come together and talk and um, connect, and it's been beneficial for Inspector Hinton. You know, he's come along and got some great info from community about issues that are happening across the community that he takes on and um, implements some actions and and um, likewise for us yeah. you know Matt will talk about other things that are happening that he might you know the other week he, he spoke at the end of our walk about um, some old older local people that were being scammed with online um, scams happening yeah so it, it's a great relationship again about implementing something in community that there's a need for, there's the appetite for, and now we're three years into that and um, still doing it. Um, and we've got people to walk through, would you believe? There was only one morning that we canned it and it was a morning that it snowed in Goldman. <laughs> so other than that, we're walking every Tuesday morning at 6am. So if any listeners are uh, from the Goldman area, I would welcome contact from them and I can give them more details on our man walk. Beautiful, beautiful Daniel. Um, and it again reiterates and I had no idea what the the three kind of pillars of the man walk was. You talked, it said walk, talk and support and the reason why I've got you on this program is because I, I believe you're a leader that does empower others to create an environments where there's support and inclusiveness and this is just another example of how you've done that. Uh, and I love um, that people sort you out as they identify you as the person that makes it happen. And that's, that's, that's Leadership 101. So, beautiful. So, I'm very conscious of... Uh, I, I'd I could talk to you all day, really. Um, but I'm, con I'm conscious of, of your story. So, the next kind of thing that um, pops out at me and then anyone that knows you in the last 12 months is... You went. You 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 entered your name into the elections for the local councillors at Goulburn, and you yeah. were successful. How, how how did that happen? How did you, how did you yeah. like? You, it's not as if you got nothing to do in your mission Australia and your man walk and a father and a, a five kids and a yeah. and a husband. Um, how did that happen? Yeah. Look, I guess it was similar to the man walk that when it came up for. Um, you know, saying we want pe local people to nominate for local council, the elections are coming up, and I had people approaching me and saying, you need to run for council, and I thought, oh, I don't know about this. Yeah. This sounds like a lot of work, and I, I in my work, I, I was working alongside council, a number of initiatives and programs, and going along to different events and activities, and... I remember I had a conversation with my wife. I said, oh, what do you reckon? She said, yeah, yeah, I reckon, I reckon you'd be good. You, you should do it. Mm -hmm. So I made, I made the decision. And I remember when I, um, because due to COVID, you know, they pushed back the elections. So I just announced my campaign. I think I gave myself about two months sort of thing. I thought, I don't want to do too much of a long leading campaign. Yeah. And I made the announcement said I was, I was running and I was just overwhelmed by the support. Mm. Then lo and behold, they pushed back the election another six or nine months and I thought, oh goodness, this isn't what I wanted to do. Yeah. But I, um, I just kept doing my business, doing what I was doing, 
I really didn't do uh, a huge campaign. I just felt, well, it's the work that I've already done in community. And I felt too, we had other council, people that were running for council that I guess hadn't been as involved in their community. And yeah, they had to do the hard yards and get out there and, and do community stuff. But I just kept doing what I was doing. I was writing a monthly column for the local paper. I was still, um, you know, a, a face in my community and had a profile that, um, you know, a lot of work had already been done to build that profile. And um, yeah, December last year, I um, was elected and I think I got the third highest number of votes um, behind, you know, our local voice of radio, the local radio station and our, uh, was our current serving mayor and, and then little old me. So, you know, I got one of the nine spots and, and really enjoy being on council because it just allows me to have another platform um, again, like I mentioned before, a voice for those that are voiceless in our community. And that's one thing I said when I was uh, interviewed leading up to the campaign was that I really wanted to be that voice for people that didn't have a voice and be able to do that and take that to the table. And now I do. I get messages from people across the community that have issues in their thing. And people, people joke about, you know, it's just about breaks, rubbish and roads. <laughs> and yes, that is. But it's about giving people... Uh, a voice and to hear their concerns and I get I get all sorts of messages sent to me that um, to those people it's something really big in their life that's happening and I'm able to then take that on get an official response back from the council CEO and 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 allow people to feel like they're being heard because that's what we all want to do we yeah. all want people to hear what we've got to say because to us it's really important or we just want an answer for something that we may have struggled to get an answer to. And I really enjoy doing that. And I enjoy the, you know, sometimes having a public profile, though, can be, um, be tricky. Yeah. Especially with five kids in a community and some that like to play up sometimes. <laughs> um, yeah. Or walking down the street to just grab milk and you're walking out of coals because you've been stopped by lots of people. But I, I enjoy that side of thing that it... If people feel comfortable in approaching me and feel like they're listened to, I feel that I'm doing the job that, that I'm, I've been elected to do. Yep. And, um, yeah, just enjoy that. Enjoy getting out to community, which I already do anyway, um, and just being able to be uh, a person that can ask those questions and be part of that decision-making in council. I, I love um, I love where these interviews go sometimes, Dan, Daniel. That's uh, such a I think you're such a deserving member to be you know a councillor on the local council because your community asked you to do it. Um, yeah. But what what I love in that answer that you just gave, uh, you said um, give people a voice, hear their concerns, allow people to feel that they've been heard. Yeah. And, I, and I take you back probably to the first five minutes of this interview when you were going to join the cops and your inspector, Mick Frawley, at um, yeah. Riverwood, Riverwood. Uh, when you were in year 11, told you to go to the club, to learn, to the Riverwood club, to learn a bit about customer service. So I think you just paid him back with that answer because <laughs> that's, that's customer service 101, um, allowing people to feel that, that they've been heard. And so many people, so many organisations don't get that. So it's just, you're just kind of rolling this off the top of your tongue because this is this is Daniel Strickland 101. So it's um, happy, you know, recognition to a job well done 
um, uh, up to this point of the of your life, and uh, and and how all this has came about for you. It's um, and it's all it's obviously a lot of hard work, and I think you're glossing over probably how how hard it can be when um, when you do have a high profile, and maybe your kids do something they shouldn't have done, <laughs> or some or someone stops you at the local shopping center because they've got an axe to grind with you. It's not it's not all it's not all beer, you know, roses and chocolates sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, so let's let's go to the last bit pretty well, um, and then we'll, I'll just ask you some um, some kind of closing questions. I mentioned in the introduction, despite all these other high volume, high profile things that you do, you're also a funeral director, at, and, and so and anyone that knows um, you know what a funeral director do does, you're meeting people at the you know at the worst time of their lives. So how did you end up? How did you end up doing that as well? Yeah, look, when I first moved to Goulburn, I, I decided that I didn't want to do... Because when I was in Sydney, I was involved with Rotary and a few other charitable causes, and I thought, you know, that, that was starting to take its toll on my family life. Yeah. So I got to Goulburn, and I thought, no, I'm not, I'm not going to join Rotary, and I'm not going to join any of the service clubs. I'm just going to focus on, on work and community. And then I found, uh, I feel like I want to be doing something. Yep. How am I going to get this over the line with my wife? So <laughs> then, then I, um, I had uh, this guy's name just kept coming up, John Crooks, John Crooks, and he's the local funeral director with RJ Sydney Craig Funeral Directors in Goulburn. Yep. And I just thought, you know, this guy's name just keeps popping up. I'm going to reach out to him and see if there's any, you know, casual work that might be available. Because yep. when I was in Sydney, I, I worked on the side... Um, for a mate with the funeral directors as well. Okay. So anyway, I reached out to him. He said, oh, look, come on down, let's have a yarn. So I went down, had a yarn, spoke to him about my, my background and, and policing and no issues with dead bodies. Yep. You know, seen a few. And um, he said, well, I'm actually looking for someone to go on call after hours to do the, the transfer of deceased people. And they also have the government contract with... Um, you know, for the uh, you know the police transfers of yeah. fatals and suicides and the like, and um, so he put me on the roster. He said, "Oh, go up to the uniform shop and get yourself a couple of shirts. Here's your tie. Here's your vest. Here's the policy manual. Uh, put me on the books. Put me on the roster. And um, yeah, I've been doing that for the last six years. One week on call, one off, and." You know, it, it fits in with my normal work because they're the weeks that I sort of stay around Goulburn and then my off weeks I, I travel across my region. And, and during those weeks that I'm on call, and it also gives me time to, to be at home because you're only out when you, you get that call. Yeah. Um, and then we're, you know, I'm at home with family uh, and just duck out to, to pick them up when the need arises. And I enjoy that side of it too because you're, yeah, you are. You, you're going to people's homes, you're going to roadside, you're going uh, where it is. People are at their worst, they've just lost their loved one. Um, you know, you, you're also working closely with the police um, and being there to support them too because I have good relationships with the police. And as I mentioned, the officer in charge for Gold, Matt Hinton, that, you know, I go to a fatal car accident and I'm still able to, you know, check in with those guys after to see how they're travelling. And I've got to know a lot of them um, as mates. Yeah. And doing that role to then flow on to, like, each year I do a uh, Are You OK Day um, breakfast 
and morning tea or, or lunch, whatever it, it falls on. And, uh, and I do that for the local police because it's my way of sort of giving back to them and supporting them and checking in to see that they're okay because, you know, I see that other side now still with them uh, with some of those traumatic deaths that I, that I go to. And I feel too doing it that if I'm out there doing it and I can deal with it and I can still go home and not be traumatised or affected by it, I feel, well, I'm saving someone else from having to, um, you know, deal with that sort of stuff. And, you know, plus it, it kicks in a bit of extra pocket money, which which gets me over the line with um, <laughs> Mrs Strickland. <laughs> I've seen some of the outings you've taken her out on lately, so I understand, <laughs> I, I understand where it's going now. So, <laughs> Look, um, you know, when I, when I uh, post who I'm going to interview next... Um, uh, you know, I, I, we talked about this throughout through the interview. People that don't, don't understand the homelessness world would understand. Would probably wouldn't understand where a leadership that interview with someone like yourself in the homelessness sector would go. But I can't. You know, you and I haven't scripted this at all. Um, I can't believe all the way through um, all of the little leadership gems you're giving all all the way through how you've how you've bettered yourself, how you've been a voice for the voiceless, um, and how you just look for new opportunities to help people. Um, it's, it's quite a credit to you, Daniel, and, and the leadership little ticks along the way are, are quite amazing. So let's start wrapping it up there now. Like I, I could still ask you 100 questions about your work as a counsellor, but that's, that's probably for another day. We, you know, we might get you back on, I think, um, uh, down the, you know, in six months' time, if you'd, if you'd like, uh, to, yeah. to talk specifically about your work as a councillor on, on, yeah. on the Goulburn City Council. But let's finish it up with this. I'll ask you a couple of questions uh, and you answer it the way you want to answer it. Think about it this way, you know, what's next for Daniel Strickland? And, and if you, like, you, I've given you, given you a couple of um, summaries about what this series is all about, leaders who empower others to create supportive and inclusive environments or workplaces, um, what would be some advice that you would give a leader who wants to do what you've done? Yeah, I, I guess um, taking the plunge and doing it, and I think as, as a leader too is, is getting down and dirty and getting on the street, getting out there. You know, I, uh, I love getting out with my staff and still doing home visits in the houses that they're going to visit clients in. And I think being that sort of being approachable, um, getting out there and doing it, taking the plunge. Now, I took quite a substantial pay cut from leaving the police and joining the not-for-profit sector, but I, I haven't looked back. Um, and I really enjoyed that time, as I hope has, has come across uh, today through our discussion. But I think, you know, that's one thing that I've, I've seen as a leader is that respect that you get when you're out there with the troops, um, on the ground, in, in my case, doing home visits, um, visiting the local parks and seeing the people that are homeless, um, getting involved with uh, different activities and events that are happening in community and um, being part of community and building, uh, strengthening a community by just being involved with it and being a, a go-to person is something that, you know... I didn't set out to be that. It just, I guess I had the skills and expertise to, to be able to, to build that and, and be one of those people 
for my community that people can reach out to and also be a leader that can provide that support to others that might want to um, do that. And, you know, I've, I've employed lots of, um, you know, and I, I know a lot of people that might listen to this because of uh, you, sir, might be former police and looking at opportunities to, to go to. And I, I speak to a lot of police that are transitioning out of the cops and saying, oh, I don't know, I never thought of going and not for profit. Would that be, do I have the skills? And yes, hell yes. You, you, you've worked a career with working with people. And I remember employing a uh, former police superintendent at Mission Beach. <laughs> uh, who now works with the City of Sydney um, homeless outreach team. So, Mr. Mr. Um, Ray South, Southwell, isn't it? Yes. 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 So I was going to raise. I was going to raise that. But you went there anyway. So good on you. <laughs> yeah. So you know, th- this is someone that's had a, a career in the in the cops and, and ended on a quite a high note, and now works in community at that you know street level, um, and did some great work in that space. So I encourage people to just do it, and I'm more than happy for people to reach out and have a yarn with me about you know if it's something they're transitioning, whether it's from the police or from somewhere else or corporate or thinking oh I don't think I could do that I, I, I think you'd surprise yourself and I think it's it's the sort of work that um, you can work with people you can work with with people in the not-for-profit sector and there's a lot of skills that you can transfer into that space um, and yeah look I did it I'm, I'm sure others can do it and look it's not glamorous it's not uh, you're not going to get rich coming into the not-for-profit sector, but you can get rich in ways, I guess, that enrich your life and your person and um, your community. And that's that's one thing that I really uh, thrive on and enjoy. Good stuff. I think you've answered um, what, how, you know, how, what you'd advise other leaders if they wanted to go your path or even be a part, part of your path. What's next for Daniel Strickland? Um, look, I have no plans to leave Mission Australia. I'm always open to exploring other opportunities. Um, I, you know, local council, I know I've heard some people in my community think that I'm using a stepping stone to state politics and federal politics, but, but that's not the case. Um, I'm, I, I really love that sort of grassroots work that we can do and you know, whilst it's sort of politics, it's not, um, it, you know, overly political. And I enjoy that part of it, that we can s- still be uh, someone in our community and uh, not be um, too separated from community. And, and I think still being approachable, still being community-minded and focused, and that's a place I really enjoy uh, being. And I hope that you know, when it comes around again for local council election, I hope I get voted on again. Um, and my work at Mission Australia, I'll continue to do that. Uh, I do love the work, um, working in the funeral industry um, and working with community there. That, that could be another focus area down the track as I, you know, well, this day and age, I'll, I'll probably have to work till I'm like 70 or 80. <laughs> but um, maybe as I as I uh, dwindle down my community services career, it might be into the, the funeral business. Um, who knows what's in store or what's around the corner. But, you know, I've been fortunate that, that COVID didn't impact me and my, my industry, um, as I know it has a number of other industries. 
so I'm quite fortunate there that um, uh, my industry is uh, reasonably immune to most things. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's always so there. I've been fortunate yeah. in that space, um, and I suppose the funeral industry. Well, yes. people are going to always be dying. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think on that note, um, I think like I've really enjoyed this interview so much, Daniel. Um, thank you for being part of our series, and um, uh, we will publish your interview um, very shortly for our listeners to listen to. So thank you, and um, we'll be in touch. Thanks, mate. No worries. See ya. Thank you very Bye. much. Bye.